0: section 12 of cambridge medieval history volume 1 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org what neoplatonism did theoretically the force of circumstances accomplished on the practical side the oriental creeds had not merely gained multitudes of private worshippers they had forced their way among the public deities of rome Isis, Mithra, Sol Invictus, Dea Sira, the Great Mother, took their places alongside of Jupiter, Venus, Mars, etc., and the Sacra Peregrina appeared on the calendar of public festivals. As most of these Oriental cults contained within them the monotheist idea, it is possible that they might have fought for preeminence, and each aspired to become the official religion of the Empire, but they all recognized Christianity to be a common danger, and M. Cumont has shown that this feeling united them, and made them think and act as one. Such was the paganism which faced Christianity in the fourth century, a marvellous mixture of philosophy and religion, not without grandeur and ability of thought, feeling keenly the unity of nature, the essential kinship of man with the divine, and knowing something of the yearning in man's heart for redemption and for communion with God was able to fascinate and enthrall many of the keenest intellects and loftiest natures of the time. It laid hold on Julian. Christianity was the common opponent of all these cults. It had entered the field last and seemed easily outstripped in the race. In its beginning it was but a ripple on the surface of a Galilean lake. Now in the fourth century it had compelled imperial recognition and alliance. In strength and in weakness its claim had been always the same. It was the one the only true, the universal religion. From its beginning it had never lacked at least a few wealthy and cultured adherents, but during the first two centuries the overwhelming majority of its converts had come from the poorer classes, slaves, freedmen, labourers. It had early drawn upon itself the contempt of society and the hatred of the populace. It was held to be something inhuman. Its votaries were the third race. They had all the unsocial vices of the Jews, and even worse vices of their own. Christians had appropriated the epithet flung at them in scorn. They were the third race, a peculiar people, separate from the rest of mankind, and nazio by themselves. The last decade of the second century witnessed the beginnings of a change. Men of all ranks and classes became converts, members of the senatorial and equestrian orders, Distinguished pleaders, physicians, officers in the army, officials in the civil service, judges, even governors of provinces. Their wives, sisters and daughters accompanied, or more frequently, preceded them. Then the tone of society began to change gradually and insensibly. Scorn and contempt gave place to feelings of toleration. Before the end of the third century, no one gave credit to the old scandalous reproaches which had been flung at the followers of Jesus even when an emperor tried to revive them. Statesmen were compelled to consider the movement, not now because it affected a town or a province, but as something pervading the empire. They found that it possessed two characteristics, which were enormous sources of strength, a peculiar power of assimilation, and a compact organization. From the first, Christianity had proclaimed that the whole life of man belonged to it. This meant that everything that made man's life wider, deeper, fuller, whatever made it more joyous or contented, whatever sharpened the brain, strengthened and taught the muscles, gave full play to man's energies, could be taken up into and become part of the Christian life. Sin and foulness were sternly excluded, but that done, there was no element of the Greco-Roman civilization which could not be appropriated by Christianity. So it assimilated Hellenism, or the fine flower and fruit of Greek thought and feeling. It appropriated Roman law and institutions. It made its own the simple festivals of the common people. All were theirs, and they were Christ's, and Christ's was God's. Then the Christian churches were compactly organized. Their polity had been a natural growth. Its power of assimilation had enabled Christianity to absorb what was best in Roman civil and temple organization, to exclude the worst elements of the bureaucracy, and to preserve much democratic, popular life. Its local rulers belonged to the people they at once ruled and served. No over-centralization crushed the local and provincial life. Christian societies formed themselves into groups more or less compact and made use of the synod to effect the grouping. One common life throbbed through the network of synods. The feeling of brotherhood did not exhaust itself in sentiment. If one part were attacked, All the others were swift to help. Nothing within the empire, save the army, could compare with the compact organization of the Christian church. In the middle of the third century, the emperor and the empire learnt to dread this organized force within their midst. The despised third race had become indeed a nazio within the empire. The first impulse was to exterminate what seemed to be a source of danger. One well-organized universal persecution followed another. From each, Christianity emerged with sadly diminished numbers, for the lapsed were always a larger body than the martyrs, but with spirit unbroken and with organization intact and usually strengthened. Constantine himself had watched the last, the most prolonged and relentless of all, that under Diocletian and his successors, and had marked its failure. From his entrance into public life, he made it plain that while his rivals clung to the method of repression, he had completely abandoned it. Christianity won toleration, and then imperial patronage. It cannot have been difficult for Constantine to carry out his policy towards the Christian religion. We cannot ascertain the proportion of Christians to pagans at the close of the second decade of the fourth century, but it may be assumed that when their organization is taken into account, they were able to control public opinion in the most populous and important provinces of the empire. All he had to do was to let the leading provinces have the religion they desired the rest of the empire would follow in their wake. He was content to adopt the principle of toleration, though for himself Christianity became more and more the one religion in which crowning reverence is observed towards the holiest powers of heaven. He probably carried the public opinion of the empire with him. The paganism of the fourth century was for the most part quiet and desired only to be left in peace. Perhaps Ammianus Marcellinus himself, a pagan, expressed the general opinion of his co-religionists when he praised the Emperor Valencian, because he tolerated all creeds, gave no orders that any one divinity should be worshipped, and did not strive to bend the necks of his subjects to adore what he did. The sons of Constantine changed all this. They proposed to destroy paganism by legislation. Their laws, doubtless, inflicted much injury on individual pagans, and in the hands of such unprincipled imperial sycophants as Paulus and Mercurius, were the pretexts for many executions, banishments, and confiscations of goods, but they remained inoperative in all the greater pagan centres. The worship of the gods went on as before in Rome, Alexandria, Heliopolis, and in many other cities. But they could not fail to irritate. If the laws were inoperative, they remained to threaten. Proposed destruction of temples and prohibition of heathen ceremonies meant in many cases the abandonment of the games and spectacles to which the careless multitude were strongly attached. Scholars saw in the advancing power of the Church the destruction of the old learning which gave its charm to their lives. Christianity itself, troubled by the meddling of the heads of the state, seemed to be rent in pieces by its controversies, to have lost its original purity and simplicity, and to have degenerated into old-wife superstitions. Ammianus. So wherever paganism abounded, and in places too where it only lingered, there was a general feeling of discontent ready to welcome the first signs of a reaction, and eagerly listening to whispers that the last of the race of Constantine, if he lived to assume to the imperial purple, would undo what his kinsmen had accomplished. At the death of Constantine, his nephew Flavius Claudius Julianus, was six years old. The child escaped, almost by accident, the massacre of his family connived at, if not ordered, by Constantius. He lived for more than twenty years in constant peril, in the power of that suspicious cousin, who scarcely knew whether he wished to slay or to spare him. He was kept secluded now in one or other of the great cities of the East, for long in a palace far from the haunts of men, solacing himself with hard uninterrupted studies. Then, for seven brief years, he startled the Roman world by his meteor-like career, and died from wounds received in battle against the Persians at the age of thirty-two. Two things about him fill the imagination of his contemporaries, and have drawn the attention of succeeding generations. That he, a recluse, suddenly snatched from his loved studies in poetry and philosophy, proved himself all at once not merely an intrepid soldier, but a skilful general and a born leader of men and that he, a baptized Christian, who had actually been accustomed to read lessons at public worship, threw off like a mask the Christianity he had professed, and spent the last years of his short life in a feverish attempt to restore the old and expiring paganism. It is this last fact that made him the object of undying hate and unconquerable love to his contemporaries, and still excites the interest of mankind. His own writings, which have survived, make it plain that from his earliest years he looked at Christianity and Christians through the blood-red mists of the massacre of his relations, father, brother, uncles, cousins. His education did little to remove the impression. The lonely, imaginative, lovable child had never known his mother's care, but he inherited her fondness for Homer, Hesiod, and the masters of Greek poetry. Mardonius, who had been his mother's tutor, was his also, and the boy went through the same course of study. The tutor was passionately fond of Greek literature, and especially of Homer, and he imbued mother and son with his own tastes. For the rest he was something of a martinet. The young Julian had the strictest moral training, and never forgot those early lessons. He was taught to be temperate and self-restrained, to look with dislike on pantomimes, races, and the other more or less licentious amusements of the populace. His tutor made him read in Plato, Aristotle, Theophrastus, and other pagan moralists, and was unwearied in enforcing pure living after these examples of antiquity. Julian was all his life a Puritan pagan, and this Puritanism of his was perhaps his greatest obstacle in accomplishing the task to which he subsequently dedicated himself. He never entered a theatre, save when he was commanded to do so by the emperor, and was seldom on a race-course in his life. He was naturally a dreamy, sensitive child, full of yearning fancies, which he kept to himself. He tells us that from early boyhood he felt a strange elevation of soul when he watched the sun and saw it dispensing light and heat, that he worshipped the stars and understood their whispered thoughts. He was filled with enthusiasm for everything Greek, and the very word hellas sent a thrill through him when he pronounced it. Seven years were spent under the care of the kindly stern preceptor, and the impress they made was lasting. In 344, Constantius suddenly sent Julian into obscurity. His elder brother Gallus, who had escaped the massacre of 337 because he was so sickly that he was not expected to live, accompanied him. They were sent to Marcellum, a palace in a remote part of Cappadocia, splendid enough with its baths, its springs, and its gardens, but which Julian looked upon as a prison. There he was supplied with teachers in abundance, Christian clergy who were supposed to teach the faith to the young princes, and from whose instructions Julian doubtless acquired that superficial knowledge of the scriptures he afterwards showed that he possessed. Books were granted him, and he seems to have been permitted to send to Alexandria for what Greek literature he desired. He mentioned specially volumes from the library of Bishop George, because along with many treatises on Christianity, for which he did not care, they included the writings of philosophers and rhetoricians. But he bitterly complained that neither he nor his brother were allowed to see any suitable companions, and he believed that all their attendants were imperial spies. The boy reserved before shrank further into himself. Outwardly he was a pattern of devotion. He received Christian instruction, was taught the evidences of Christianity, and used the knowledge later to expose its weaknesses was trained to give alms, to observe fasts, to venerate the shrines of saints to the extent of aiding to build them with his own hands, and occasionally to officiate as reader at public worship. Privately, he fed his mind on the lessons of Mardonius, and studied such books of philosophy and rhetoric as he could command. Amianus Marcellinus, who knew him well, says that from his early years he felt attracted to the worship of the gods. After six years in the gilded prison of Macellum, The brothers were summoned to Constantinople, Gallus to be made Caesar or vice-emperor, to misgovern frightfully the province entrusted to his care, and in consequence to meet a not undeserved death, though to his brother it was another crime to be charged against Constantius, a Christian and the murderer of kinsmen, Julian to meet soon the supreme moment of his religious life. He was set at first to pursue his studies in the capital city, and the scholar appointed to take charge of him was Hesibolius, the fourth-century vicar of Bray, whose religion was always that of the reigning emperor. But too many admiring eyes followed the princely student, and Constantius ordered him to Nicomedia, the centre of the cultured paganism of the East, and the home of its acknowledged leader, the great rhetorician Libanius. Julian had promised not to attend the lectures of Libanius. He kept his pledge in the letter and broke it in the spirit. He got notes written out for him and pored over them day and night. But more important than all lectures was the intercourse with men such as he had never met before. At Nicomedia, Julian came first in touch with those for whom the old gods were living, who had the gift of seers, to whom prophecies and prodigies were matters of fact. He saw and conversed with men who had easy access to the ears of the gods, who could command winds, waves, and earthquakes. He knew Aedesius, who was said to receive oracles from the deities by night, and whose wife, Sosipatra, had lived from girlhood amid prodigies of all kinds. He was told of the wonderful seances presided over by Maximus, and of the marvels which occurred at them. This Maximus was one of the most celebrated theurgics, or mediums, of 4th century Neoplatonism. His favourite occupation, he said, was to live in constant communion with the gods. He had long white hair brilliant magnetic eyes, and his disciples boasted that his influence was irresistible over all those with whom he came in contact. Eusebius of Mindus, also a Neoplatonist, told Julian of his powers. He made a number of us descend into the temple of Hecate. There he saluted the goddess. Then he said, Be seated, friends. See what happens. Then judge whether I am not superior to most men. We all sat down. He burnt a grain of incense and chanted a whole hymn in a low voice. The statue began to smile, then to laugh. We were afraid at the sight. Do not be alarmed, he said. You will see that the lamps which the goddess holds in her hands will light of themselves. As he spoke, the light streamed from the lamps. Julian eagerly begged to be introduced to the man who was so powerful with the gods, and Maximus was even more ready to gain one who stood so near the imperial throne. No accounts survive of the spiritualistic seances at which he assisted, but their effect on the nervous, sensitive young man was irresistible. Maximus converted him heart and soul to the new paganism, and was the confidential adviser of Julian from that time onwards. The young man entered into a new life. The religion which Homer and Hesiod had sung, which Plato and Aristotle had speculated upon, which he had known as a student from books, became all at once living to him. His daydreams of the past vanished, or rather changed into an actual present. The passion for Greece, which had gradually grown to be the ruling force in his character, had now the support of everyday experience. The gods sung by the old Greek poets, and many a passionate Oriental deity unknown to them, could be seen and their presence felt. He could himself have communion with them through mysterious rites of divination. They had created the noblest thing on earth, Greek civilization. They were even now molding and controlling events. They could give courage and inspiration to their votaries. From his sojourn at Nicomedia onwards, Julian believed that all his actions were determined by divine voices which he heard and obeyed. This natural religion was not the crude polytheism his Christian teachers had said. Hellenism had made it a unity. A great first cause, the father and king of all men, had parcelled out the lands and peoples among the deities, his viceroys. They were the real rulers of provinces and cities, and govern them according to their natural habits and dispositions. What was Christianity, when compared with this ancient and universal worship, supported by the wealth of civilization which had come down from the past? It was a cult of barbarian origin, born in an obscure province, ignorant of Hellenic culture, its very scriptures written in a barbarous Greek offensive to the ears of educated men. Was Greece to abdicate in favor of Galilee? Perish the thought. So Julian believed, and longed to steep himself in Hellenism at its purest source, the schools at Athens. He gained his wish through the sisterly kindness of the Empress Eusebia. At Athens, as at all the schools of higher learning, the majority of the teachers were pagans, and Julian, with more than his usual eagerness, devoted himself to their lectures and all the benefits of the place. He was continually seen surrounded by crowds of youths, old men, philosophers, and rhetoricians. Outwardly he was still a Christian, for his life depended on his conformity to the imperial creed, but inwardly he had consecrated himself heart and soul to paganism, had already become conscious that he had a divine mission, and that he was a favourite of the gods. The double life he had to live, the knowledge that he was surrounded by spies ready to report anything compromising to his imperial cousin, must have acted upon his naturally nervous and emotional temperament, and betrayed itself in many outward ways. His portrait, drawn by a fellow student, Gregory of Nazianzus, though the work of an enemy, needs only a little toning down. Twitching shoulders, eyes glancing from side to side, something conceited in nostrils and face, feet that were never still. Hasty laugh. Sentences begun and never finished, irrelevant answers. Julian had more to do at Athens than study philosophy. He had to penetrate to the centre of Greek religion. He was secretly initiated into the ancient mysteries of Eleusis, and there are hints of other initiations, either there or afterwards, of the worship of Mithras, of the purifying rite of the Taurobolium. Constantius was childless, the punishment of the gods, whose temples he had despoiled, said the pagans, a retribution for the slaughter of his kinsmen, His own conscience sometimes whispered. The needs of the empire demanded assistance. It is hard to say whether the emperor or the student was the more unwilling, the one to summon and the other to obey the call. Julian was ordered to Milan, where the court was. He was made Caesar, was married to Helena, the emperor's sister, and sent to Gaul to protect the province from invading Germans. The recluse bookworm, the man whose emotional nature had succumbed without suspicion to the suggestions of spiritualist seances, was suddenly confronted with one of the hardest tasks that practical life could offer. He had to restore a half-ruined province and to overcome an enemy grown bold by success. He was totally ignorant of the arts of war and of administration. It need not cause surprise that he proved an intrepid soldier. He was the last of a race of warriors, and the blood spoke. His studies had taught him the need of concentration and thoroughness. He set himself to learn and speedily mastered the elements of drill and discipline. But what the world did wonder at was that, hampered as he was by the assistance whom the jealousy of the emperor had forced upon him, he showed himself a general who defeated his foes as much by strategy as by fighting. The Germans had been driven back. The administration of Gaul was improved and its finances reformed. When the legions, irritated at commands from the distant emperor, mutinied and called upon their general to assume the purple, January 1360. After long hesitation, Julian consented. It meant civil war. But the gods encouraged him. His mission called him. The soldiers rallied round him and he marched against Constantius. There was no battle. Constantius died before the armies met, and Julian became sole ruler over the Roman Empire. During the whole of Julian's five years' stay in Gaul, he publicly professed the Christian religion, which privately he had repudiated. He allowed his name to be attached to the persecuting edicts of Constantius, while in secret he began the day with a prayer to Hermes. His dissimulation went to the length of joining with Constantius, in threatening anyone with torture who took part in the very ceremonies of divination which he himself was all the while practicing in private. The only trace of his real feelings is that no Christian emblems appear on the coins which he struck in Gaul. This double life did not cease when he assumed the purple. He ostentatiously joined in the public devotions of the people during the festival of Epiphany 361. While in private he was practicing all manner of secret incantations and divinations aided by an adept in the mysteries of Eleusis. It may be that he waited until he was sure of the sympathies of the army. He seems to have taken care that most of the soldiers who followed him from Gaul were pagans, and that the Christian troops were left behind to guard the province. At all events, it was not until he reached Sirmium on the lower Danube, where the magistrates, Christians, and soldiers received him with acclamations, that he declared himself a pagan and could write to Maximus. We worship the gods openly. Most of the soldiers who follow me reverence them. We have thanked the gods in the sight of men with many hecatombs. He entered Constantinople, a professed pagan, believing himself commissioned by the gods to restore the ancient religion Dionysus and the Hercules in one, the prophet and king of a pagan revival. In his treatment of Christianity he believed that he showed impartiality and refrained from persecution and if due allowance be made for his private hatred of those whom he contemptuously called Galileans, it is possible to believe that he was sincere in his professions. His first act was to issue an edict permitting all bishops exiled by Constantius for their attachment to the Nicene theology to return and resume possession of their confiscated property, but not their sees. More than once, the leaders, clerical and laic, of the various parties into which the Christianity was then divided, were summoned to his palace and told that they were at liberty to follow and advocate any form of belief they pleased. Amianus Marcellinus, himself a pagan and a devoted admirer of Julian, declares that the emperor did this in the firm belief that the Christians were so thoroughly divided that this liberty would end in their destroying each other by their mutual quarrels. If so, the intention shows how little Julian understood the faith he despised. The bishops who had thronged the antechambers of Constantius and used Backstair's intrigues against their rivals were very poor specimens of Christianity. The freedom of discussion which Julian permitted, the absence of imperial interference, were the means of uniting, not destroying, the Church. The greater part of the Emperor's edicts against Christianity were undoubtedly meant by him to make restitution to paganism and to the state of property and privileges which had been wrongly bestowed. The churches were commanded to restore the temple sites and lands which had been given them for ecclesiastical purposes. If churches had been erected, they were ordered to be demolished, and the temples rebuilt, at the expense of the Christians. The clergy and Christian poor had been granted sums of money from municipal treasuries, and these grants were to cease. Constantine's legislation had given to the Christian clergy privileges enjoyed by the heathen priesthood. To Julian's mind, paganism was the religion of the state and alone it carried privileges with it. So the special laws guaranteeing to the church rights of inheritance, and laws exempting the clergy from personal taxation, and freeing them from the obligation to serve on municipal councils, were abrogated. Ammianus Marcellinus probably expresses the popular opinion when he declares that this legislation, however just in theory, was harsh in practice from its cumulative weight and the haste with which it was enforced. No edict of Julian's excited the indignation of the Christians so thoroughly as that upon education. It enacted that no Christian was to be allowed to teach in schools, where the literature of Greece and Rome form the basis of education, that all teachers must expound and insist upon the religion of the author studied, but that Christian children might attend the schools. Perhaps the emperor's reasons for his legislation increased their wrath, for pedantry is more irritating than force and Julian's pedantic nature is displayed in his reasonings. Homer, Hesiod, Demosthenes, Thucydides, Aesocrates, Lysias, all founded their learning on the gods. Did not some of them believe themselves to be consecrated to Hermes, and others to the Muses? It seems therefore absurd to me that those who explain their works should not worship the gods they reverenced. He did not like to remember that Mardonius, his own honoured teacher, had been a Christian, His fixed idea was that Christianity could have no connection with Hellenic thought or civilization, that its affectation of interest in ancient Greek literature was hypocrisy, and that it was his duty as ruler to keep men from occasions of practicing such a vice. From one point of view, the edict seemed to affect the Christians but slightly. They had long been accustomed to send their children to schools in which the most famous teachers were pagans, but now they believed that the emperor desired to use all the public schools throughout the empire for proselytizing purposes. In the end, this edict did more good than harm to Christianity. It showed in a striking way both the steadfastness and the resources of the Christians. The two most distinguished Christian teachers, Proheretius of Athens and C. Marius Victorinus of Rome, at once resigned their appointments. The former was the most esteemed teacher in the East, Libanius only accepted. Julian did his utmost to win him over to paganism. When he remained firm, the emperor offered to make him an exception to his rule, but the Christian refused to accept any concession which was not to be shared by his humbler brethren. Christian teachers all over the East assiduously devoted themselves to acquire the elegancies of the Greek tongue and to write school books in that language which could serve as substitutes for the authors they were forbidden to use. The emperor naturally abolished the labarum and changed all other Christian into pagan elements. He permitted and encouraged the worship of his statues. He purged the Praetorian Guard, not the whole army, of Christians. He also dismissed from his service all Christian attendants and endeavoured to make the civil servants completely pagan. At least one distinguished Christian had little cause to thank Julian for his toleration and his treatment of Athanasius almost suggests that the emperor felt that the great bishop was the opponent from whom his plans had most to fear. On Julian's edict, restoring to their homes and properties Christian bishops who had been banished by Constantius, Athanasius naturally returned to Alexandria and was warmly welcomed by his people. Julian was indignant. He insisted that his edict had not authorized the banished bishops to resume their ecclesiastical work and ordered Athanasius to be sent away from the city and then from Egypt. By all the gods, he wrote to the governor of Egypt, nothing could give me more pleasure than that thou shouldst expel from every corner of Egypt that criminal Athanasius was there during my reign to baptize Greek wives of illustrious citizens. He must be persecuted. Julian's efforts to restore and put new life into paganism are much more interesting than his attempts to damage Christianity. He called the religion he had so fervently adopted Hellenism and its co-religionists, Hellenes. Christianity was a barbarian cult. Its supporters, Galileans. But in reality, Christianity of the 4th century had absorbed much of what was best and most enduring in Hellenism, while the religion of Julian drew more of its contents from Oriental than from Hellenist sources. One cult, into which he had been initiated, and which he greatly esteemed, Mithraism, was the only one of those Oriental religions which seems to have been entirely unaffected by Hellenist thought. The religion which Julian attempted to force on the Empire was a mosaic of decadent philosophy, bloody sacrifices, rituals old and new, spiritualism, and divinations of all sorts its piety came from the cult of the mysteries it contained so much that was new that it was much more an attempted reconstruction or reformation than a revival of paganism julian was quick to see that no religion could be universally accepted which had not behind it some common stable truths and that christianity had gained enormously from that compact system of doctrine which it had laboriously built up during the three centuries of its existence if critics, like Celsus, had made capital out of the intellectual differences within Christianity, paganism was in a worse case. Heathenism had no basis of intellectual certainty. It had no universally accepted or acknowledged system of doctrine. If pagan philosophy were appealed to, it was anything but an harmonious system. One teacher said one thing, only to be refuted by another. The Hermitimus of Lucian had somewhat wickedly shown that the opinions of philosophy were as various as the thinkers were numerous. But the philosophic thinking of the age of Julian was eclectic, and Neoplatonism was supposed to reconcile all sorts of opinions. By ignoring some and rounding off the sharp corners of others, it might be plausibly made out that all philosophies really meant to say the same things if they were only rightly understood. So Julian went to Neoplatonism for the intellectual basis or dogmatic theology of his new Catholic state religion. His philosophical acumen was by no means equal to that of his masters, and he modestly confessed it. Iamblichus had taught him all that he knew, and that philosopher, in the opinion of Julian, had so explored the heights and depths of human and divine thought that nothing remained for any man save to accept his conclusions. The neoplatonic thought of a trinity of existence took the central place of the Christian in this new pagan theology. Three worlds exist, first and highest, is the realm of pure ideas where the supreme principle the one the highest good the great first cause lives and reigns below it is the intellectual world of which presides the same supreme principle but now represented by an emanation from itself holy spiritual the logos of the platonic philosophy the third is the world of sense existence the universe of things seen and handled and there as beseems its surroundings The ruler, the emanation from the supreme principle, assumes a visible form, and can be seen while adored. End of section 12